have you ordered a pizza and then pretended for the pizza guy's benefit that there are other people in the house that you're going to share it with? Oh, I don't play that game anymore, John. No. Uh, I, uh, <laughs> like, if they try to hand me extra utensils, I'm like, no, 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 no. There's a sad person here. You keep that to yourself. <laughs> Doc says there's something wrong with me I've got a sadness I can't shake now Is there something I can't take now? It's the hilarious world of depression. I'm John Moe. We live in a society where life is easier if you're white, straight, and have lots of money and connections and no mental illnesses. If you're not white, not straight, grew up poor in an immigrant family, suffered abuse and have a lot of anxiety and depression, life is not easier. But comedy is still possible. I'm Solomon Giorgio, and I, uh, I am in Los Angeles, California, and I am a comedian and a writer uh, for TV shows. Solomon Giorgio's family is Ethiopian. He was born in a refugee camp in Sudan, and then the family came to America. Here's Solomon on Comedy Central's This Is Not Happening, talking about the first part of his life in this country. And I uh, actually moved to America in 1985. Uh, my family, we first moved to St. Louis, Missouri, uh, because we all want to be introduced to racism at the same time. <laughs> And we're trying out for a couple of years. We're like, we better move. Uh, and uh, what we decided to do was move to Fresno, California. Uh, yeah. If you're not familiar with Fresno, every part of Africa is better than Fresno, California. <laughs> Solomon has loved comedy his whole life. His whole family has. They loved it before they could even understand what any of the comedians were saying. We all loved comedy because that's uh, the few things that we comprehended uh, when we didn't speak the language. Surprisingly, stand-up comedy, too, which even though we didn't know what was going on, you kind of see a rhythm and you know people being entertained and laughing along. So we watched uh, a lot of old television, uh, and it was actually our first TV ever as well. Uh, and we, I think so many, so many episodes of Three Stooges were on, I Love Lucy, any like slapstick, uh, we just immediately started watching and enjoying. Um, so you can only imagine how disappointed I was when I when I met my first white person in real life and I was like, oh, you're not you're not like the three stooges at all. <laughs> I can't slap you and poke you in the oh, eyes. You guys aren't doing any of that stuff in, out here? Okay. <laughs> in Fresno, two things came into his life, elementary school and bullying. I was very much an, an immigrant kid. Uh, I smelled like all of the spices. Uh, <laughs> Which is, is anything, any kid that smells spicy is not going <laughs> to do well in school. <laughs> and we also showed up with Ethiopian food uh, to eat in our lunch, ba in lunch bags every once in a while. And that's also another thing. Like, yeah. what are you eating? What is that? That is not a real food. And you're like, okay. <laughs> in second grade, the bullies found a new way to go at Solomon, poetry. We did the Solomon Grundy uh, poem, which was the uh, Solomon Grundy, born on Monday, blah, 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 blah. And the kids latched onto it because it was my first name, and it got to the point where I, I got so like I, I was. It upset me so much how constant it was that I declared that I was going to kill myself in front of my entire second grade class. Second grade. 
So that was my very like big dwell into depression. I mean, I can't imagine you're you're calculating enough at in second grade to do something for effect. It must have really felt like that's what you intended to do. Oh yeah, I was definitely it was it was very like I just didn't know what to do. So it was because I've never been not one to voice how I feel. So I just was like, this is how I feel right now, and I for sure want to die if this keeps happening. And in response to that, my teacher ripped the poem in half and said no one can mention Solomon Grundy uh, at all. Did that work? Um, for that particular thing, yes. I think that was one of those things where if you introduce an entire uh, classroom of kids to the concept of suicide, <laughs> uh, they tend to, to back off a little bit. So it was more the, the threat than the banning of the poem that had the effect. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the banning of the poem was for sure... Uh, secondary in effect to a uh, a crying child (laughs) threatening to take his own life. Being bullied feels awfully similar to depression, really. Your power is taken away, and so is your safety. You start to see yourself as the bullies see you, someone weak and bad and stupid who should be hurt. And anyone who says, oh, well, yeah, bullying, that's just part of childhood. Shut up. You're wrong. It doesn't have to be. In his early years of school, the bullying never actually lasted all that long at any particular school because Solomon and his family never stayed long in any one living situation. They moved every few months. He's still not sure why. Uh, like every time we moved to a new place, I'd be at another school. I think I, like between kindergarten and the third grade, I was at three different schools each time, mm. each year. Each year, three different schools. And I think by the third grade, we were finally, we stuck to one uh, elementary school until I was in, into the sixth grade. So until I finished um, elementary school, that was, we stayed at one. And that one, there was some bullying there, but it wasn't so aggressive. Uh, and, and I made some friends uh, because I got to be there long enough. So it wasn't, it didn't get to me as much as it did when I was bouncing around a lot. I'm I'm older than you by a chunk, but I remember really horrible uh, Ethiopian jokes in my school oh, yeah. when I was a kid. Was that still a thing when you were around? Oh, yeah, I assure you, they they kept going. They never uh, let go. Yeah, <laughs> uh, they especially yeah. It's they I've I've heard my fair share, um, but for me the jokes really weren't too bothersome. Uh, like. Uh, with Ethiopians, especially within our household, we were taught to be like we're really proud people. So, like I like it's like you can like insulting me in regards to where I'm from wasn't that effective because I liked where I'm from too much to to be bothered by it. But uh, it was just mostly uh, a lot of just dealing with social anxiety and and uh, not being able to make friends and. Uh, it's just in general, I was, to this day, I'm very uh, awkward in regards to one-on-one conversations. I've gotten much better because of stand-up, um, but I used to be so awful. <laughs> I, I, like it's uh, one conversation with one person can ruin my whole month uh, when I was younger. Mm. My father cheated on my mother, uh, got kicked out of the house, and uh, he became an Alaskan fisherman, injured himself, settled in Seattle, uh, reconciled with my mother, and that is how I got to escape Fresno, California. (laughs) High school is spent in Seattle, where a lot of gray skies and persistent drizzle make it easy for a depressed person to just stay indoors and fester. Depression-wise, there was uh, definitely isolating myself. 
um, and sort of keeping people within arm's distance because I was because um, like we especially we grew up poor so in high school that was a thing that I, I did not want anyone to know about me and my family um, that was something I was very concerned about uh, like all the all the image like the superficial uh, things were definitely highlighted uh, in my high school years because I didn't like I didn't have many issues in regards to um, like people making fun of who I am, but uh, just a lot of feelings of shame about who I was, especially uh, be figuring out that I was gay and not wanting anyone else to know that. That was a big integral part of my depression uh, during my teen years. So when did you realize you were gay? Oh, I probably figured that out. I was about nine or ten. Um, when I put that together, it was, uh, for sure, the Sears catalog uh, gave me a big help on that one, the men's <laughs> underwear section. <laughs> Uh, the guys standing around with the football in their underwear. Yeah, and it's like you know what, whatever that is, that's what I want to be. <laughs> <laughs> and especially, and with high school, and you have crushes on people, and especially if those crushes are something you can't even discuss out loud, uh, and you do sort of like a, a lot of performative heterosexuality on my part. Uh-huh. <laughs> I didn't really have a girlfriend per se, but I was. Um, I definitely didn't. Uh, allude to me not being attracted to girls. You were able to to fake the locker room talk pretty well? Oh, yeah, I had to. Oh, man. It's being lecherous towards a gender that you don't really aren't that attracted to is very... (laughs) I should have gotten an Oscar for that performance, honestly. I was very good at it. (laughs) Growing up, what did mental health mean in your family and what did homosexuality mean in your family? Well, um, both of those things didn't exist <laughs> in my family. Like you either, you like mental health, like the con, like I can already envision how hard my parents would laugh if I try to explain what a therapist does to them. Like, the, <laughs> it's like, what? So you tell them your problems? You can tell us your problems. What's wrong with that? Like, it's one of those things where, um, it's such a, f- distant concept to them because it's, it's, it sounds like a frivolous luxury and, uh, when it comes to mental health and homosexuality, that was uh, cons- constantly uh, pointed out as a big, uh, as just being morally uh, wrong in every possible way. It was something that both of my parents openly despised. And any uh, any sign of me being homosexual was, uh, they, like, every, like, at all costs, was, uh, was deterred. Were they physically abusive? Oh, of course, yes. Okay. Any other kind of abusive? That was a, it was physical and verbal. Um, nothing sexual uh, in regards to my parents. No, they would never do that to their kids. Uh, but definitely belittling us, hitting us, uh, and it was especially when we were younger. That's those are the worst memories I have about how of how abusive they were. Um, but. Over time, they sort of figured out that their kids are, there is more of us than them, which was handy. Uh, <laughs> and that sort of kind of, uh, over time, they just learned that we were going to get bigger and stronger and that they had to back away. This is from Solomon's comedy album, Homo Negro Superior. I've been gay for quite some time. And I, uh, I, did, I came out when I was 18 and I, I told the world. I told my parents, which I don't recommend. (laughs) They're very traditional, very uptight African immigrants. So write them a letter. They can't read. Um, 
But yeah, they got they got upset. I, well, my dad was the one that got the most upset. I don't know if it was because I said I was gay or the fact that I sang the entirety of Papa Don't Preach immediately <laughs> afterwards. <laughs> it's a much longer song than you think it is. <laughs> What happened when you were a second grader threatening to kill yourself? Did that wake them up to any kind of mental health awareness? Oh, um, they didn't find out about that one. Okay. And I think it's been one of those things. They they still aren't open to a lot of things right now. They're very much um, one aspect of me becoming uh, mentally healthier later in life was realizing that I don't have to wait for my parents to be okay with things, and that is sort of kind of the uh, how I function now is um, is not is not hoping for them to get something. <laughs> it's hard to imagine what life must have been like for Solomon back then, and it's painful to imagine. For Solomon Giorgio, it was too painful to stick around, and at age seventeen, he decided to run away to Los Angeles. There was just this need to escape the situation that I was in um, because most of um, my depression was not more school-based, it was more family-based. My parents were abusive. Um, I've dealt with a few sexual assaults from other family members that weren't direct, not immediate family, but uh, cousins and uncles. And there, for me, my family situation was far more toxic than any other outside uh, influence. And it just made made sense to me that I could never come out to my parents or be the person I want to be. And who did you want to be? I just wanted to be a famous gay man. <laughs> I wanted people to like me. I wanted for for me to fall in love. People to fall in love with me uh, as a person. For me, uh, this was always going to be a dark cloud if I was with my family uh, at the time. How did you get to L.A.? I uh, I extorted money from my mother's bank account. <laughs> okay. And I, and I, in the middle of the night, I got in a cab with all of my belongings because I was a very fancy transient. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I just took the, I got to the Greyhound station. I took a bus. No one questioned me. I was a very tall 17-year-old. And that's, like I like I planned for a couple of months and... It just all sort of fell, everything fell into place, and I showed up to L.A. after a 24-hour Greyhound uh, ride, and I was like, all right, it's time to start your new life here. He steps off a bus in Hollywood, does not get spotted by a talent agent, and does not become a movie star, but is in Hollywood. I was around the corner from uh, the Chinese theater, uh, and I stayed at a hostel there, uh, for a month until my money ran out, and they, the uh, the adult of the place uh, sort of took care of me and snuck me in for an additional month, and then they eventually were like, well, you definitely need to be taken care of, so they, they took me to a shelter, uh, not like right, right off of uh, Coanga in Hollywood, and I was there for a few weeks, um, and they wanted to send me back home, and I was very much against that. And I ended up at a shelter, uh, another shelter in Van Nuys, that was uh, specifically for uh, for prostitute, ex-prostitutes and strippers under the age of 18. Um, even though I wasn't either one of those, uh, the uh, owner of the place could for sure tell that I was a, a closeted gay teen. And so she's like, all right, <laughs> you, you're going to be safe here. 
LGBTQ youth make up between 5 and 10% of the youth population overall, but up to 40% of the homeless youth population. This according to the Williams Institute at UCLA. Conflicts with parents over orientation or gender identity are the biggest reasons why they run away or are kicked out. Abuse at home is right up there too. All right, so teenage Solomon is in a shelter in Van Nuys. So I stayed there for a couple of months, but then uh, eventually I, my anxiety started kicking in because I didn't like because I was having to face the fact that uh, I had to do adult stuff. I had to go and get a job. I had to get my own apartment. I had to graduate high school and go to college and figure all these things out. And it was all on my plate all of a sudden. And I was and I, I didn't know that was just, it was becoming overbearing. So I had an anxiety attack. And I locked myself into a bathroom uh, after a few hours of not letting anyone in. They, they contacted a, a group of people that uh, institutionalized me uh, for three days. <laughs> uh, like I got, a, I got an evaluation. They tried to figure out what was going on. I will, I have about three days, I was placed into a facility in Inglewood, uh, which um, I wouldn't say was the best experience. I would probably say it was a low point because, like, I even though I had fairly bad anxiety attack, I that place was not the best place to to have any children in because it was um it was sort of like the middle middle ground of a prison and and a, and a mental hospital, and it was just like it's not conducive to um to mental like health health progress. Yeah. It was very much like you have to endure the situation. And hopefully convince the doctor that you're mentally healthy. And it's, it was very performative. It was very much like, I'm fine now. You can let me out. Yeah, Maria Bamford says places like that are, are just holding pens. They're just yeah. cages that you wait around in for a while. It's pretty much yes. So what did you think was going on with your mind through all this time in Los Angeles? It, it was... Um... It's still hard to pinpoint because uh, it's been so long now. Uh, it's been twenty plus years. It's been twenty years, um, but it's uh, it was just it was just uh, just a need to find uh, stability, uh, which I don't think I ever really had. Like even though my like my family offered me the most stability I have ever had, but it's it wasn't a healthy situation to be in. So. And just the idea that I had to maintain it myself was also impossible. So I think that's, it just, every like everything just was overwhelming. So like it's, to this day, like I, I don't think I've ever been that overwhelmed by anything. Solomon had gone to L.A. to flee a bad situation and ended up in a bad situation. He did not find stability. He did not find a new life. But while he was there, he performed stand-up for the first time. And I was extraordinarily awkward. I was barely able to let out any of the jokes. I I was booed, and I it's, it shocked me so much that I didn't do stand-up again for eight more years. He ends up having another panic attack, gets institutionalized again for another few weeks. By this point, he's been in L.A. for five months. And that's what pushed me to the edge of calling my pushed me to the edge, and then I called my father, which was the only way I could have been took, uh, taken out of the hospital. Uh, and he came and picked me up. Uh, it was very, uh, like, he, like they, like, that's the thing is that I know my parents uh, are harsh and strict, 
but they do still have the capability of doing loving things for their kids. So that's kind of, uh, which is a weird aspect of it, uh, which is, because that's the thing you have to ex- have to accept about being in abusive relationships. Like, they're going to do nice things for you. <laughs> yeah. So it's what throws you for a loop all the time. So back to Seattle. After being hospitalized and institutionalized, washing out of L.A., dreams not coming true, booed during his only attempt at comedy. Back to Seattle to live in an abusive environment where being gay, where being who he is, is not okay. Yeah, this sounds pretty bleak. But the second part of the show is still coming, and we'll hear how he gets from this low point to becoming the guy who makes the comedy that you'll hear going into this break. It's from an appearance on Conan. Just a reminder, I am still gay as hell. Uh, (laughs) Thank you, I'm great at it. I appreciate it. Um, Yeah, I was just sitting there, uh, you know, one day just, you know, being black. And I was like, you know what? Give me another thing. I got it, I can handle it. <laughs> but yeah, I, uh, I'm also uh, an immigrant uh, because I always want the news to be about me, you know? <laughs> I, um, my family came to America from Africa in 1985, back when I was just a, a little diva. And it was, al- it was also the first time I ever saw a white person. And my immediate thought was, it's a black ghost. That's <laughs> Mother, be wary. This country's filled with apparitions. (laughs) The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by Health Partners and by MakeItOK.org. Make It OK is a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma surrounding mental illnesses, not just depression, all kinds of mental illnesses. We enjoy having a lot of laughs on this show. It's a way of dealing with depression, maybe demystifying depression a little, make it not so scary. But let's not kid ourselves. It's a serious illness. The good news, people can and do recover. They get help. That's why we need to make it okay to talk openly. It can be an awkward conversation, yes, but makeitokay.org is full of information you can use, like what to say, what not to say, and stories from people who tell you what it's like to live with depression and anxiety and other mental illnesses. Go to makeitokay.org where you can take the pledge to Make It Okay. Thank you so much to Health Partners and to Make It Okay for joining us in fighting stigma so we can all get better. Back with Solomon Giorgio, refugee family, bullied as a kid, threatening suicide in second grade, abusive home, closeted gay, ran away to L.A., institutionalized there, had to come home all before turning 18. So how do you get from that to something like this, from Solomon's 2017 Comedy Central special? Like, I know for a fact that everyone has an enemy list. At least one person. Like, you don't want to kill them, but you want to watch them die. (laughs) We all have that list. I have my enemy list. It's a very short, very concise list. First person on that list uh, is a gentleman that offered me a cookie but then handed me a Fig Newton. (laughs) Those two things aren't comparable. Close your eyes. Imagine a cookie. Is anybody here thinking of a nasty brick of fiber? (laughs) 
with gross-ass jelly in the middle. For teenage Solomon back in Seattle, things didn't get off to a great start. I was still like, I was still lost uh, in who I was and what I wanted to do um, because uh, television was sort of uh, my obsession. It was my greatest escape. Uh, and comedy was also a very, very big escape for me. And the thing was that those were two things I wanted to be involved in very much so, but I didn't think I had the ability or the uh, any chance of getting the opportunity to to make those dreams come true. So he had these dreams. He wanted to be on TV and perform and be that famous, beloved gay man. But he didn't know how to do that. And he really didn't think he would ever figure it out. That's the depression talking, the thinking that you would never figure it out. It's like, where's Waldo in these interviews sometimes? Oh, hi, depression. You're hiding behind the carousel over by the wizard. But then Solomon Giorgio found something that he had never had before. Friends. Like real friends for the first time when I was about 18. Like I had school friends, but nothing, I wasn't hanging out with anyone. I wasn't going out and doing, like, doing stuff that other kids were doing. And I made friends uh, with a great group of, of kids who all love to do drugs and get drunk in the woods. And I was for sure, like, I was very much uh, against that in, throughout high school. But once high school was over, I was like, let's give this a try. <laughs> let's find out what the big deal is with the woods. What are these, what are these, what's this marijuana thing I've been hearing about? And also alcohol? Let's test this out. And honestly, it was some of the greatest years of my life was hanging out with this group of kids because they were immediately supportive of who I was. Um, and coming out was significantly easier because I had them in my life. The hilarious world of depression does not condone getting drunk or high in the woods. But this is really about friends, that first group of friends who you didn't know as kids, where you can do grown-up things together and you have some freedom, you can get around. That can be hugely important. For some people, it's in college. For others, the military. Sometimes the woods, and it often involves getting intoxicated. But the booze, drugs, and woods aren't the important thing here. Friends who are kind, that's the crucial thing. Solomon also got a new mom out of the deal, kind of. One of them, uh, his, their mother, was she was one of the greatest parents in the entire world. She was the kind of mom who was like, you can do whatever you want as long as you just check in with us and make sure you're okay. And we all, she's just a brilliant woman, fantastic, amazing artist. Uh, and she was the kind of person who saw me for who I was and just made me a better version of myself. Um, so she, she became my second mother. Uh, and that's, that was the biggest uh, churn in making me uh, more comfortable <laughs> with who I was. And in terms of coming out, was it a thing where you knew way earlier, oh, I am absolutely gay, but I can't yeah. say anything? Or was it trying to figure it out for yourself? No, I, I was uh, I was very hip to it very early. It was very it was a clear cut line. Like I I, I tried my my experimentation was uh, very brief. <laughs> it was not <laughs> deep dwelled. It was like oh that's what a vagina is. Good for it. And then I just moved on. <laughs> I came out to everyone I knew around me and including my parents. Uh, but and their 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 reaction was 
what I expected, which was negative. Um, but I had support of my siblings and support of my group of friends and support of this wonderful woman who is helping take care of me and make my make any mental issue that I'm having a lot easier because I was definitely having panic attacks at the time, but they were definitely, uh, that support group was essential uh, to me to to get over that weird hump. How did you figure out what was going on with your mind? Did you get to a, a therapist or? Initially for me, I was, I've actually studied a lot of psychology uh, and I did not see a therapist yet. I, like I, I, at the time I, based off of the being institutionalized, I um, had a big disdain towards that system. So seeing a therapist at that time to me meant being sent to the hospital again. So I, I was very, I was avoiding it at all costs. Uh, but I was definitely um, learning to voice what I was hiding for many years. And, and that was probably a very, the, the biggest help uh, to... Not not like like I'm not gonna I didn't overcome my depression, but it it um made it made it something I can live with. I can f- be depressed and also go out and be happy, and I can go out and be with my friends. And so whatever like stronghold depression had on me and anxiety had on me uh, was definitely uh, weakened uh, significantly by being with uh, these people. With the support of people who loved him, he went forth to try comedy again. One day. Uh, me and one of my best friends, Lee, uh, were just delirious one night, uh, and we were, we made this recording uh, of a. It was off of a bottle of wine uh, called Big House uh, Big House Red Wine, uh, which has prison speak uh, on the back of its bottle. Okay. And I know it's and I I read it in a prison voice, uh, which is sort of like a mix like of of a Ving Rhames and a Samuel Jackson. Uh, <laughs> And I read it and I recorded it, and we thought it was the most hysterical thing in the world. Uh, we recorded it onto a flip phone because that's what was available at the time. We were going to this bar pretty regularly, uh, and we shared the recording with the bartender, and she dies laughing, and she convinces the two of us to do stand-up comedy at, her, at the bar. And uh, we set up a date two months later, and then about a month in, my friend Lee was like, uh, oh yeah, I have stage fright. I'm never going to do that. And I was like, cool. <laughs> <laughs> and what I decided to do then was, um, I was like, okay, I have to do this alone. Uh, I have a month to prepare a solo routine. I'm going to do 45 minutes and I'm going to have all of my friends, uh, come and see the show. And that is how I got back into stand-up comedy. Uh, not saying that any of the, any of the good jokes were good. <laughs> I don't think I'll ever retell any of them, but I got, that's how I garnered that confidence because I just, I went, I, I deep dived in. So every step after that wasn't as terrifying. I used to think comedians love doing stand-up because when it goes well, they felt loved and validated by the audience. And that may still be a part of it. But the more comics I talk to, the less essential the audience really seems to be. A stand-up set that goes well is about being calm and present inside one's own mind and body. It's a moment of agency over oneself that is so wonderful when you've dealt with depression, which is an illness that steals you from you. And I like I started performing when I was in elementary school, uh, based off of the ESL recommendation uh, to help get to help me lose my accent. It took me a while to get get fully comfortable on stage, but 
whenever I am, whenever I performed, whenever I did any anything, anything uh, stage wise, it was the best I've ever felt, uh, and it's such an immediate uh, reward of euphoria uh, when you do well uh, on, when you, as a performer. So, and like especially with comedy, like that's it's such it's such a high. Like I, the amount of times I'm just shaking, like when I especially the first couple years I would I, when I did well I would just be shaking for in in just joy for like two hours three hours maybe and I just like I like that feeling uh was it's was stronger than drugs or any drug I've ever taken it was, it was it was orgasmic every time so I like it's it's hard to to turn away from it he turned toward it hard getting on stage any way he can working at his craft it's one of those things where i'm always impressed like i don't know how to explain how to to like respond to my work ethic questions because it's being from a family of immigrants not having a strong work ethic is uh it doesn't make any sense Uh it's not (laughs) an option like laziness is not really that much of an option like i i generally feel like i am lazy in comparison to what i've seen other people do Uh (laughs) Uh, especially like in like like as, as as abusive as my parents are, they worked hard. They were hard. Like there was, there was no time where I didn't see them working. <laughs> so it's like the idea that I'm like I'm glad I like I'm I'm glad people think I have a good work work ethic, uh, and I I've, I'm sure I do. But <laughs> in comparison, I'm probably the laziest. <laughs> After five years in Seattle, Solomon Giorgio decided to take it to the major leagues and move to Los Angeles with some friends and roommates who were also comedians. They moved into what turned out to be a really good place. My neighbor is a, a showrunner uh, for several shows, and he uh, he got the job at SpongeBob SquarePants, and they wanted newer voices, and he knew that me and my roommates were all comedians, and he liked us all a lot. Uh, and he just came up to our, our porch one day and he was like, do you guys want to write for SpongeBob? And we were like, sure, whatever. That's, that's totally going to happen. And then the next day we all got emails from Nickelodeon and we're like, oh, okay, this was a real thing. This was an actual thing that happened. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so that one was a fun coincidence, uh, but the, uh, the rest, um, I was very like I was churning in packets for years uh, for many shows, hoping one of them would would want me to work for them, um, and I got really close uh, to a lot of like late night jobs and, but still to no avail. Um, SpongeBob was the first job that I was offered, and that was just a weird coincidence. Um, and then my comedy career was doing really well, so I was that was my main focus. Uh, I was just doing stand up. And this is all great, writing for SpongeBob, doing lots of stand-up. But in entertainment, even when you're doing well, that doesn't mean those times will last forever. And as we've talked about before, even the biggest achievements won't solve your problems. As a performer, um, again, like I said, you get these really big highs, um, which also meant that you got extreme lows, uh, like the... I got a big bout of it right after I did my first Conan, um, which was like three months, like was like four, four months. I was the most excited person in the world. Uh, I did, I did, uh, I did my set, and I felt amazing. This is from Solomon's debut performance on Conan O'Brien's show in 2015. 
Uh, I also, uh, I work at a fine dining restaurant because I'm a uh, well-spoken ethnic homosexual. <laughs> Very hot trend these days, you know? Um, and it's a little painful for me because I am an immigrant from a third world country and I have to deal with foodie, people who call themselves foodies uh, all the time and God does not strike them dead on the spot. <laughs> I recently had this woman snap at me and when I came up to her, she goes, excuse me, <laughs> do you have any Himalayan sea salt? <laughs> Took all my restraint not to lean into her and go, my mother once had to eat her cat when she was nine. <laughs> of course we have Himalayan sea salt. Are you kidding me? Oh. What people don't tell you is that once you like reach a life goal, that, uh, <laughs> that you just you sink, sink in within yourself and you're like, is that all that I'm going to do from now on? And... You just want to know what the next thing is going to be. And like you get afraid, you feel like you don't deserve it. Um, and I did. I got in a really, really bad mental space because I was like, that. I thought I nothing else would happen after that. And that's, that's it for me. Uh, or if I do it again, it will not be at that level. And it's just... It's just like like I was very afraid, uh, and I'm still that way. Um, but now that that have like it's like because like I will at the time uh, with Conan, I was I went I was working at a restaurant. So the very next day, right after doing my big television debut, I was working at a restaurant <laughs> uh-huh. and, and just walking, serving people, knowing full well that I performed on TV the night before. And it's just one of those things where you're like, that's just the way things are, and. Were you looking forward to the Conan set thinking this is going to solve everything? This is going to make the depression go away? Yes, because it's one of those things where like when when you're sad, uh you just you assume the anything that makes you feel good is um fleeting yeah, and or a fluke and you don't know, yeah, and then you don't expect to feel that good again. Ever since then I that's one thing I've I've learned to manage is that over like with every TV set, with any with any writing job, is that uh, is that it's not what's going to fix things. It's just going to be the thing that I want to do, but not the thing that will make my life better. So, what are you doing to address that now? Like, have you gotten do do you do therapy? Do you do meds? Um, I don't do meds uh, because I've I like it's meds are very work a lot very strong on me, so. <laughs> I and so and I can't wean off very off them very easily. Um, for me, I, I do therapy here and there, but uh, I like to check in with myself. I I like to I for me it's alleviating a lot of the pressure I put on myself, and that is something that I like that I, that's a tool that I got from therapy as well, um, and something that I I, I catch uh, here and there. But also, alcohol is a big prevalent thing that I need to. <laughs> so you need to use or avoid. <laughs> Uh, I, I use it, uh, and I, I'm slowly learning to not use as much. (laughs) 
When I interviewed Solomon Giorgio, it was after I'd spent a long time watching his videos and listening to his comedy album, Homo Negro Superior. And it was a bit jarring because the self-effacing, kind of soft-spoken guy that I interviewed sounded pretty different from the bold, blunt performance style that he uses. He's got this kind of comic vanity and arrogance. My name is Solomon Giorgio. That is my real name. Uh, it is my birth name. Uh, it is a very beautiful name for obviously a very beautiful man. <laughs> my last name Giorgio is Italian. I am Ethiopian. <laughs> and some people have asked me, Solomon, how does an African get a European last name? Well, <laughs> it's a lot like a fairy tale. Um, <laughs> Except in this fairy tale, there happens to be an Italian army occupation, a brutal civil war, a few decades of famine, and no happy endings. So, you know, <laughs> like all fairy tales. Um, however, uh, my first name, Solomon, is a very old biblical name. It was actually given to me by my uncle, Mufasa Rigatoni, so, you know. <laughs> Every comedian that I'm a fan of sort of postured on stage. There was always a good, strong confidence about them, like George Carlin, um, Margaret Cho, uh, Brett Butler. The, Rita Redner was another one that I was obsessed with. Um, and also watching, like, like, some more and, like, all these comedians on on Comic View on BT. Like, there's, there's just all this confidence to speak with intention uh, that I'm, that I was just obsessed with because the way they talk on stage is so like it's it, it like it's it, it it's made my life for the better because i i needed that to help overcome my social anxiety so like when i when i when i wanted to do comedy i was very much was like what can i do like i was very much about brevity and 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 uh exuding uh arrogance <laughs> uh -huh. Like you, like like I joke about it on my uh, as a person in conversation, but on stage it just it would be weird to see a six foot four African feeling uh, questioning themselves, <laughs> right? But <laughs> so like that. So I did like I, I did I tried like self deprecating here and there, but it's it seems like the strongest things I can do were when I uh, sort of glorified myself. And maybe that onstage confidence is indicative of who Solomon Giorgio has actually turned into. I remember after my first Conan, I, my, I talked to my mother, uh, and my, somebody showed her the performance. My, one of my brothers showed her the performance. And we had a discussion, and in it, she says she liked it, but she was embarrassed that I said I was gay. And I immediately stopped her in her tracks. I was like, you don't get to tell me that. Um... This is what I'm going to do, and if you don't want to be a part of it, then that's your choice. And that's sort of the decision that I've made with my parents. Like, you're only allowed a certain elements of me if you only if you accept who I am. You're not going to get... And that's kind of how we are. We don't really fully discuss things anymore, and we never have. Um, but I definitely... They, they definitely know that they're... Especially with my mother, there's she has no place to tell me what I should and shouldn't be doing, um, and it's almost like it's not like I'm protesting against them anymore. But I definitely want them to understand that uh, the past abuse is is uh, is remembered, and I will get to say whatever I want until the end of time. 
Are you hopeful about the future when it comes to your mental health? Um, I'm definitely in a much stronger state mentally than I was my entire life. Um, this is the best you've ever been. Yes, and it's and it's getting better every day. It's sort of um, I've gotten more to like I've thought I had no control over what what my life would be and. Now, especially with age, I realize that I have a lot more control and and that makes that's that in itself makes me feel significantly better. What do you know now about mental health and mental illness that you wish you knew a long time ago? I definitely knowing definitely knowing if how uh, normal it is, how much other people are suffering would have been a big help um, and how imperative it is to talk about how you feel out loud. Uh, like that's probably would have been like just knowing that I had a place and where people weren't, uh, where I wasn't of like some freak who didn't, who didn't uh, deserve to be happy. <laughs> like yeah. it's, it was just, uh, it's just a comprehensive, like it's, yeah, just knowing that I'm not alone would have been the biggest help in the world. The Hilarious World of Depression is produced by American Public Media. Our producer is Chrissy Pease. Christina Lopez is our web and social media doyen, thanks to the thesaurus.com website. Kate Moose is executive producer, technical director Corey Schreppel. Our theme song was written and performed by Rhett Miller. If you need help, confidential help is available at the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, 1-800-273-8255. It's free 24 hours a day, seven days a week. 1-800-273-8255. The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by Health Partners and MakeItOK.org. Make It OK is a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma around mental illnesses. MakeItOK.org has information that can help you and your loved ones starting that conversation can be awkward, but Make It Okay has tips on what to say, what not to say, stories of hope from people who've been there. You can take the pledge to Make It Okay at makeitokay.org. Hilariousworld.org is our web home. We're also on Twitter, and come visit us on Facebook. A lot of great conversation there with your fellow thwadballs. New shows being formed over there. It's a good place to hang out. If you're still listening to the credits, thank you for listening to the credits. On our next episode, well, I don't know, because it will be several months from now. This is our season finale of season three. Thank you for lending us your ears and hearts and minds. But there will be a next episode. We are renewed. We are so renewed, you guys. Season four is on the way. We'll be back and talk to you then. I'm John Moe. Bye now. says doc that's the problem what if i was to tell you i'm piachi this great big smile is just for show what if i was to tell you this is just grease paint would you say i'm a hopeless case say it ain't so I'm a sad clown Tell me something I don't know Would you 
say I'm a sad clown Tell me something I don't know